This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm your host. Uh, I am from Westwards. I'm also a writer in my own right. But today I'm talking to Tanya Vavilova. How are you, Tanya? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a little envious. You're in one of my favourite places. You're down near Kiama in Minamara at the moment, I believe. Is that right? I am. And as I'm talking to you, I'm looking out over the Minamara River at low tide and there's a colony of gulls and they're swarming and making helix shapes in the skies. It's pretty nice. Mm. I'm sorry that you're not here. Yeah, me too. It's a, one of my favourite places in the world. I just love it down there. Um, have you had taken a wander up into the rainforest? Have you gone up there? I did when I was younger, but we haven't yet. Uh, we've been working so my partner and I have are both on our laptops all day and haven't really left uh, the house at all there seems no need because of the gorgeous view mm -hmm. uh, but we are thinking of going up to the falls on Saturday yeah it's lovely a lot of people go down that way to go to uh, Jamboree and go down the, the giant toboggan but I think you're probably more interested in the, the lyre birds and the well if there's any platypuses up there probably are I would thought I haven't seen one yet. No, I've only ever seen one platypus in the wild and that was in North Queensland. So, so there you go. Um, so Tanya is a, uh, a writer of predominantly nonfiction, I suppose you'd say, you, although you've written some short stories, haven't you? You, you, mm. you, you were, I think you were, you won the Wollongong short story prize. Is that right? That's probably not yeah. the proper title for it, but it was, it's effectively what it was. Um, you've published in Mianjin, Lifted Brow, Seizure Magazine, Mascara Literature Review, literary review uh westerly i'm pretty envious about that that list of uh that back list there that's there's some pretty impressive titles in there tanya you've had a book uh, recently come out in march launched by richard glover uh called we are speaking in code and i'm interested really in what the tagline was when that book was first uh written and and proofed there was a tagline on that that was eventually taken out on the print version uh, living on the fringe with grace, humour, and lucid rage. There's a little bit of a little bit of stuff to unpack there, isn't there? A couple of definitions we maybe need to cover. So can we do that? Let's talk about what you mean by living on the fringe. What are we What are we discussing here? Because what we're going to be doing today is talking about this idea of personal essay and discursive writing. So we, let's get some definitions before we go any further. Okay. So living on the fringe for me has looked like juggling part-time jobs or casual work. It's meant renting, living with mental illness. Uh, it's meant being queer and out. It's meant counting coins at the end of each fortnight. It's meant also rubbing shoulders with others on the fringes. So it's interesting that when you said um, living on the fringe for me, because it's a, it is a very subjective thing, isn't it? The, the fringes for people's different, people have different fringes, I suppose. But you've, you've covered a few things there. You're talking about 
artistic fringes, you're talking about social fringes, you're talking about economic fringes. Um, which one of those do you think is the, has had the greatest impact on your work as a writer? Mm, I think living with a mental illness uh, provides an infinite well of content, especially if you write memoir like I do. And it's really hard to see silver linings and often I think there are none. Uh, and this certainly isn't the case for a lot of people, but I guess one of the advantages of having the experience of living with a mental illness for me has been that it's given me something to write about. It's provided fodder. Uh, and I guess that, I mean, that is a very contentious point, uh, but it's also something that I write about and it's in the book. And so, yes, so probably uh, that's the fringe uh, that, that's most significant for me. And the other stuff all comes with being a writer, the, uh, the penny pinching and the, and the part-time work. And it's been interesting actually with the, uh, the COVID thing, because I, as, a, as somebody who worked as a full-time writer for quite a while, um, which basically means you're doing several jobs. So you're full-time in terms of calling yourself a writer, but it's a whole bunch of different jobs. And with the COVID mm -hmm. thing, I'd, before the COVID thing, I'd always thought, well, if my current job at Westwards were to go belly up, I can just go back to visiting schools. But even that's sort of fallen over. So it actually is quite a tenuous existence, isn't it? It's very tenuous. I switched to teaching online like everyone else did a couple of weeks ago. And I did some of that. I had a construction contract, which was actually quite lucrative. Uh, and I'm always juggling lots of different gigs like all other writers and I guess people who non-book people people outside the industry often ask well when you all say oh well when you write your bestseller or when this happens or when you sell the film rights your life will look so different and it's just not realistic and it's this ridiculous fantasy that people play out in their minds and I expect that my life now is what my life will look like in 10, 20 years time, 30 years time. I will be picking up short-term contracts. I'll be doing some technical writing, a little bit of teaching and where I can, I will carve out space to write the things that interest me, but that will never be a living for me. Well, if you say this is what my life will look like in 10 years time, I'd invite you to turn your head slightly to the right and look out that window at the, uh, at the ocean because if that's what your life looks like uh, but it's not your house is it it's um no as we find a nice spot to go and sort of imagine almost that this is our this will be our life one day yeah so you're right it's a week in an airbnb uh with easing of covid restrictions and it is glorious right now uh but my general uh arrangement where i live in the inner city looks like me working in bed hunched over the laptop that's propped up by cushions yeah. because I don't have an office. I don't even have a desk. I have flatmates. There's never quiet. All three of us are on zoom calls and I work from bed or sometimes I creep out onto the balcony that my flatmate and I share. Mm -hmm. And that's what my day to day looks like. Um, so, but yes, right now glorious. I couldn't be happier. Uh, and I hope I have more weeks like this looking out over the Minamara River ahead of me. I, lo I love it when people say that, uh, 
you know, when your bestseller comes along and like it's almost just a, an inevitability. But uh, the, the one that I really love is when people say, I bet you wish you'd written Harry Potter. And you go, well, obviously. Like, I'm sure you have a point, you know, <laughs> what could it possibly be? Um, so that, that's, that for, for you is fringe. What do you mean by, well, grace and humour, I think we can, we can sort of take as read. Lucid rage, what's going on there? What's lucid rage? I must admit those were my publisher's words. Right. I think she borrowed them from maybe a grant application that I'd once written for the book. Yeah. Uh, and that the whole tagline was put on the book because my publisher thought, and I think this is generally uh, known, people are reluctant to pick up. People basically want to know what type of book it is when they pick it up. And so you'd be very unhappy if you thought when you picked up my books that it was going to be a novel. And so that tagline was really to signal that, hey, this is a memoir, it's a collection of essays. Otherwise it seems a little bit deceptive, maybe. Do you think that's about where it's going to get put in the bookshop or do you think it's about some sort of signal to the reader that this is of a different worth or, or should engage a different part of the reader's mind or, or what, what do you think I the think purpose it, of something like that is from a, from a, from a publishing point of view? I'll have to ask my publisher, but I think it's really both those things. So it helps people uh, shelve the book correctly, but it also helps the reader make a decision when they're in that store. Maybe they're not in the mood for writing, for reading essays. Maybe what they want is escapism or entertainment. And I think while memoirs can be both of those things, there's also some darkness uh, and some emotional labour that you have to do, really, even as the reader. Yeah, we had some conversations about this at the Kitten Club last week um, where we talked about uh, where we're talking to Fiona Wright, actually, who I'm sure you you know, if you don't know her personally, I'm sure you know of her. Uh, She's a this, friend. Right, yeah. and this idea of memoir versus uh, essay, but, you know, how you define that. And we decided that basically a lot of these things are really just to help people who own bookshops know which shelf to put them on. So we're talking about personal essay. And, and so I'm going to start with this question. And it's, it's not meant to be as combative as it sounds. At what point when you're writing an essay about yourself, do you go, why should anyone care about this? Why, why is my personal view on this topic of any importance to anyone? Yeah. So I think you shelve that question until after you've written the essay, or at least that's what I do. So uh, I write for myself initially and I guess when I started working on this book I had no sense that it would ever get published and so those essays, a, a large number of them, I wrote long before I had secured a publisher and so they were, uh, I found them interesting to write and cathartic and they helped me ch uh, churn through some emotions and I also enjoyed the research that came along with the writing uh, and the talking to people and the interviewing, all of that I enjoyed. Once I had the publishing contract, then that is the sort of question that I worried about, still worry about. Why should people care about my experience? Why does it matter? Who's going to be interested? 
about my struggle with eating when I was a high school girl. So many girls struggle with eating. Or why should anyone care about the fact that my finances are dismal? How dull. And then I think I always come back to this point that it's not really ever the content of these experiences. I mean, we all go through difficulties in our lives and they might take different forms, but we're not so dissimilar. We all experience ill health and illness and there are certain universal uh, universal experiences, I guess. But I think it's about how you unpack those, how you write about them, how you weave together that story. And I think that comes down to your perspective, your outlook on life and, and also the craft of writing. And I think beyond that, you always hope. And I, I guess as a reader, you want to see yourself reflected in the works that you read. And when you don't, you try as a writer to fill that gap. And so I hadn't come across many memoirs by queer writers and I'd been searching and I'd been reading. And so ultimately uh, that thought gave me comfort that I was writing something that would reach some people that would connect with people, maybe a small group, but I guess uh, that's why I thought writing the book or publishing the book rather mattered. Because Australia's got a... We have a very vibrant non-fiction industry. We love our true crime and we love our biographies. Do you think there's a growing appetite for, for the essay? I hope that we have. My view is so skewed because it's kind of all I read. It's your world, yeah. So one book that a lot of my friends talked about was Three Women by Lisa Today. In it, she follows three ordinary American women as they experience love and loss and extramarital affairs and breakups and all of the things that each one of us has experienced or will experience at some point. And these women, there is nothing exceptional about them. And I think that's what makes the work so engrossing and so relatable to a reader. And Lisa Tadeo, I think it was the case that someone in her family passed away and so she had an inheritance and with that inheritance she decided to write. And she interviewed many, many women over many years and settled on these three that are in the book and she moved to their towns and lived in their local area for some time and interviewed hundreds of people in their lives, so neighbours and friends and cousins, to compile this, this narrative of their lives. And each chapter, you alternate between these three women's stories. And there was just such a generosity of spirit. And even though the women that you read about made decisions that you might never have or that you might be critical about, you really empathised with them. And it was a good exercise, I guess, in perspective taking. And so that my point was there, that this is, this is the book that I think broke through, um, a work of nonfiction that broke through. But I still think that in my group of friends, I read collections of essays that no one else around me does. Is there a growing interest in essays and nonfiction? I'm not sure. 
uh, but if there is, why might that be? I think we have a curiosity and we want to see how other people live. There are also, I think, I mean, maybe it's a terrible impulse. It's that thing where you see a roadside accident and you can't help but stop and watch and you're this roadside gawker mm. and you want to get a glimpse of the person being carried into the ambulance and you can't look away. And maybe that is part of the instinct. That's what draws us to personal essays. The funny thing about that example, I think, is that, you know, it's one that people use a lot with the whole, you know, car crash, can't look away. But when you are looking at a car crash and then you actually see something quite gruesome, you suddenly realise that actually that's really, that's a really a private moment that I shouldn't be looking at. You know, if you see somebody who's actually has died or whatever at a car crash, you, I don't know about anyone else, but I certainly at that point go, oh, I, I feel like I've, I've overstepped a mark here. Is there a similar line in, in non-fiction writing where you go, this is now too close for me to be looking at? Yeah, and I guess readers make that just like the roadside gawker might have this jolt and realise that actually that was something that they didn't need to see or didn't want to see or had no right to see. And can't unsee anymore. Yeah. And can't unsee. And I think readers probably, I mean, certainly as someone who reads a lot, there are some topics that I won't touch or there are certain essays that I stop halfway through and come back to later. And I guess it's about being ready for that particular writing or topic or theme. And you don't want to be drawn into the writer's sphere of intimacy uh, prematurely. I think there's a, there's a limit and sometimes... I think that when I'm reading a collection of essays, sometimes I get this awful feeling like I'm on a bus or on a train and I'm eavesdropping on a conversation that I shouldn't be hearing and that I've invaded someone's intimacy. So that's quite a powerful moment though, because I, I, I guess it's, for me, that's kind of analogous to going to the theatre and sitting in the front row and then seeing a a really I'm thinking of a specific example of a, a play I went to years ago where there was the, the the couple in the in the play were making out and I'm talking like pretty serious making out hands under clothes and and hands in places where I didn't expect them to go right you know about a meter and a half from me and unlike a movie where you can go well this is sort of filmed on a closed set of what this is happening in front of 200 people yeah. And there's an immediacy. Do you think that's sort of analogous to what you're talking about, this being thrust into someone's experience in a way that is hard to get, walk away from but feels a little bit voyeuristic, if you like? Yeah, and I think at any moment you can leave. You can get up off your seat and walk out of the theatre. You can change train carriages. You can put down the book and you can take a break. Uh, but yes, I guess I often worry in my own writing. I mean, I choose what to reveal and how much to reveal, but sometimes I do worry that it's too much or that someone might think it's too much and that they might be put off or unsettled or disgusted. And I guess if I think about that too much, I would never write anything again. And so I like to leave it up to the reader. Uh, and if the book or whatever it is that I'm writing isn't for them, I expect them to turn away. 
as a writer of predominantly fiction myself, I, I know that there are moments where you can go, I've just revealed something here that if people go, oh, that sounds like a really creepy perspective for, for James to take, I can easily go, well, it's just a character. But that's a little bit different with nonfiction, isn't it? You kind of are warts and all. Mm-hmm. And I guess I always say that the I in the book isn't necessarily me. It's a persona that I'm choosing. It's me at a particular ta- a point in time and it's me or as much of me as I want to reveal. And so I exercise that control. And still, that might be too much for some people. And that, I guess, is okay. I love what you said about three women and the writer going and, and staying in the communities. I mean, that's, that's quite gonzo, isn't it? That's actually pretty method, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, but the other thing that you said about that that really resonated with me was making assumptions about people at the beginning and then through that unpacking of the situation, you actually reach a place of empathy, if you like. Even if you still don't agree with their position, you, you understand a little better. And the example I would use, I don't know if you've seen it, it's on Netflix, it's a, um, a three-part documentary series called One Husband, Three Wives. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's it basically it's a, a documentary, a fly-on-the-wall documentary of some Mormons in, in Utah living out in the desert with the three families with one husband at the head of that fa- those three families. And I, I came to this going, you know, these people are, are nuts, you know. And I still don't think it's necessarily the right, right way to live, but having been invited, if you like, into their family and seeing the way their families operate, you start to develop a bit more of an empathy for the way they, they live their lives. I think I would like to watch that, actually. That sounds fascinating. Uh, I think that's it. It's about you might not do that thing or you might not live your life that way, but it's given you an insight and you have gained some sort of understanding. And I think that's one of, I mean, that's something that books and TV shows do for us. But something that I talk about a bit is the idea of entering a contract with your reader. And that contract is that you're going to expect them to work a little bit as well. How do you draw that line between how much I, how, how didactic I can get about whatever and how much of it is just me saying, here's a situation you can draw the the lines between the dots if you see fit. How do you make that distinction? Mm -hmm. I had a lot of trouble initially and I wouldn't explain incidents or I wouldn't, when I first started writing, I would write about the things that had happened to me and I would write this happened and then this happened and then this happened, but there wasn't a lot of reflection and so you didn't necessarily get Uh, what I thought about the incident or how I processed it or what my reaction was to something that someone else had said. And my publisher kept picking me up on it and saying, but what does this mean? What are you trying to say? What's your point? I'm not sure that I get it. And I think that's still what I struggle with because it's so clear in my head. And so I often don't explain myself enough and I need to be pushed to explain more to give the reader some clues. And, um, and I think I'm getting better at that, but my instinct normally is to under explain. And then I, I do need to be prodded and I do 
uh, need to make what I'm writing more digestible by giving the reader some more context here or a clue there and just enough that they can still come to their own conclusions about something. Um, but I guess you don't want your work to be completely free floating. Yeah, someone once said that the less space you leave between the lines for the reader to draw their own uh, assumptions about what you're saying, the closer you are to successful commercial fiction. I mean, have you, have you kind of accepted the fact that if you've, you've chosen an art form that unless you're Gore Vidal is, or Christopher Hitchens is going to never be as widely read as James Patterson, for example? Yes, I'm absolutely okay with that. I mean, the money would be good, sure. Um, and, you know, and, and my book has sold so little copies that it's not even appearing in BookScan, which, um, for those that don't know, is the, uh, the software that uh, tracks book sales in Australia in any given week. And um, my book has not once appeared in the first 5,000. And that is not surprising to me at all uh, and I know that this is kind of this is the stuff that I write now and I will probably continue to write and the way that my publisher talks about it and I'm not that certain that I know what she means but she says what you want is a small number of committed readers really engaged readers uh, the depth of engagement matters more than the numbers and I guess of course, that sounds very virtuous. Um, and at my book launch, all my friends bought my book and my parents and my sister. Uh, and, you know, so we sold how many copies that was. Uh, it was you know, it was a packed room. Maybe 50 people went home with a book. I don't know how many more I've sold. Uh, <laughs> but, that's uh, but, I'm, but I'm at ease. That can't be the point, though, can it? I mean, you, you can't go into this going well. I think if you go into a, any creative art going, this has to be my, my way of making my fortune, if you like, then it's, that's going to affect how you write, what you write, and lead you to be disingenuous, wouldn't it? Yeah, of course. At the same time, though, it is so hard to find the time to write because you spend so, much, so many other hours in your day trying to make a living. And so I, at the moment, I'm getting paid quite well to write technical copy for a construction company. And so I spend my days writing about ballast cleaning and re-sleepering and rail grinding that's how I spend my days and it just seems so of course it feels unfair that that's what I spend my days doing rather than writing my short stories and my essays and yes 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 and you know if I got to make the world from scratch uh, that wouldn't be the case no, at all that's right, that's right but then everybody would be doing it as well wouldn't they of course we're kind of getting towards the end of our time but I wanted to very quickly ask you Something you read for us on our on our Westwards reading channel on, on YouTube was about your love for dogs, despite having an allergy to dogs. Uh, what is it about writing about animals that, that attracts you? I've cared more about dogs in my life than I have about people. I find it easier to be in their presence 
and I find myself at ease and it's the kind of ease that I've never been able to find with the people around me. And I'm interested in the human canine relationship and I'm interested in what we see in the other and what that says about us. So I'm interested in what, in the emotions that we project onto animals and the things that we seek from them, from other animals, we're animals. But uh, the, I'm interested in how we interact, what we see, what feelings we have towards dogs and what that says about us. There must be a better way of putting it. I just don't. Well, the words are a little bit slippery. No, no, it's okay. Um, it's, uh, our, um, our spoken word event that we run at West Words is called Hemingway's Polydactyl Kitten Club and Speakeasy. And wow. The, <laughs> Ernest Hemingway um, had a bit of an affection for cats. But he said, this was his quote, a cat has absolute emotional honesty. Human beings, for one reason or another, may hide their feelings, but a cat does not. That's a cat. Dogs are a little bit different. Dogs struggle not to show you their emotions, don't they? Mm. And I think I appreciate that openness and honesty. And it says a lot about me that I crave unconditional love. And I can think of nothing better than sitting on a cold day with a dog on my lap. And I like the feel of their pelt and their warmth on my thighs and the wet nose and the pink tongue. And I especially like the long-snouted dog. I, for some reason, I love a long snout. Uh, and I love a scruffy-looking mutt, ideally with, well, with a long neck. Uh, so the Airedale, the Airedale is a dog that I quite, that I'm very fond of. Yeah, it's interesting, this, the, the dog-cat thing. I mean, I know, I, you probably know Christopher Hitchens' quote about this where he said that if you feed a dog and give it love, it comes to believe that you are God. Whereas if you do the same for a cat, it comes to believe that it is. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I often say that dogs would make terrible editors because they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well done. Yeah, that's perfect. Ready to go. Yeah, you're ready to publish. Whereas cats are like, yeah, it's all right. It's... I think you need the dog at the beginning of a project when you are so unsure of yourself and you just need some encouragement. And I think then what you want is a Labrador with a sunny disposition to just come and put their paws on your shins and say, keep going, you've got this, it's going to be all right. Maybe the cat as an editor is mm, second now. draft, maybe second draft. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. Tanya Vavilova, thank you so much for talking to us about discursive writing and the personal essay. Your book is called We Are Speaking in Code and there's an ebook version, correct? Yes, you can get it on the Brio website. Which is briobooks.com.au, B-R-I-O, briobooks.com.au. And I guess, do they sell the hard copy version or do you have to go to Booktopia or somewhere like that for that one? Uh, they don't sell the hard copy. So go to your local bookstore. I know that... Your local that independent bookstore, yeah. Your local independent bookstore. Yeah. Uh, if you happen to live near me, I know that Better Read Than Dead in Newtown has copies. Which is where um, it was launched, correct? Which is where it was launched. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. All right, so thank you very much, Tanya, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Uh -huh.